It's the Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. May 6th, 2017. That's the day we launched the Mark Stein Club, and here we are in 2022, launching our second half decade. If you don't know what the Stein Club is, well, you're missing out. We have so much great content that we've piled up from our first five years that we're marking our anniversary by taking a stroll back. On today's show, a few highlights from our first year. Best-selling author Douglas Murray on The Strange Death of Europe. A great musician, Tal Backman, with a great Canadian song, 9-11 Reflections on a terrible and disastrous war strategy. Rudyard Kipling, do you come from a land down under? That's not one of his, by the way. But we start where we began in May 2017 with what became the first of our serializations of classic and forgotten fiction that nevertheless speaks to our time. This excerpt is from The Tragedy of the Carrosco by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, not Sherlock Holmes, but a one-off caper uh, that is more insights into Islam and jihad than a thousand speeches by Western leaders. And you'd be surprised how naturally it flows into the strange death of Europe. We call this Stein Club series Tales for Our Time. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, had a sick wife. And in 1895, they went to Egypt, hoping the climate would alleviate her tuberculosis. No writer likes to waste local colour. So in 1898, Conan Doyle published The Tragedy of the Carrosco, the story of a party of Anglo-American French tourists on a trip up the Nile. Uh, who wind up getting kidnapped by the uh, the ISIS or Al-Qaeda of the day, the followers of the Mahdi. What's striking is how familiar it all is. The uh, sudden intrusion of an unbending savagery upon modern man. Even the techniques are much the same. Then, as now, the jihadists believe the infidels are looking at things back to front, that the advanced scientific mind is, in fact... An effete, arrogant weakness in the face of unquestioning faith. Yet in the end, the English, Irish and Americans among the party have an instinctive civilizational confidence. Uh, they respect their foe in part because they understand that's what he is. It was an odd sensation rereading the tragedy of the Carrosco after 9-11 as innumerable Western academics lined up across the TV studios and public prints to insist that, quote, poverty breeds desperation, I came across this passage. It isn't safe to reckon upon a dervish's fears, remarked Brown. We must always bear in mind 
that they are not amenable to the same motives as other people. Many of them are anxious to meet death, and all of them are absolute uncompromising believers in destiny. They exist as a reductio ad absurdum of all bigotry, a proof of how surely it leads towards blank barbarism. From Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, The Tragedy of the Carrasco. You do no good by exposing yourself, said Belmont, drawing Colonel Cochrane behind a large jagged boulder, which already furnished a shelter for three of the Sudanese. A bullet is the best we have to hope for, said Cochrane grimly. What an infernal fool I've been, Belmont, not to protest more energetically against this ridiculous expedition. My poor Nora, my poor little Nora! muttered Belmont in the depths of his grizzled moustache. "'What do you suppose they'll do with us, Cochrane?' he asked, after a pause. "'They may cut our throats, or they may take us as slaves to Khartoum. I don't know that there is much to choose. There's one of us out of his troubles anyhow.' The soldier next to them had sat down abruptly and leaned forward over his knees. His movement and attitude were so natural that it was hard to realize that he had been shot through the head. He neither stirred nor groaned. His comrades bent over him for a moment, and then shrugging their shoulders they turned their dark faces to the Arabs once more. Belmont picked up the dead man's martini and his ammunition pouch. "'Only three more rounds, Cochrane,' said he, with the little brass cylinders upon the palm of his hand. We've let them shoot too soon and too often. We should have waited for the rush. What's the matter with the Frenchman? Monsieur Faudet was stamping about the plateau with the gestures of a man who has been stung by a wasp. Sacronon, sacronon, he shouted, showing his strong white teeth under his black waxed moustache. He wrung his right hand violently, and as he did so he sent a little spray of blood from his fingertips. A bullet had chipped his wrist. Headingley ran out from the cover where he had been crouching, with the intention of dragging the demented Frenchman into a place of safety. But he had not taken three paces before he was himself hit in the loins, and fell with a dreadful crash among the stones. He staggered to his feet, and then fell again in the same place, floundering up and down like a horse which has broken its back. "'I'm done!' he whispered as the colonel ran to his aid. And then he lay still with his china-white cheek against the black stones. When, but a year before, he'd wandered under the elms of Cambridge, surely the last fate upon this earth which he could have predicted for himself would be that he would be slain by the bullet of a fanatical Mohammedan in the wilds of the Libyan desert. The Mark Stein Show with Douglas Murray. 
you describe at one point uh, you're in France mm. and you visit the famous uh, cathedral yeah. in which Charles Martel's mm. remains are interred, the man who uh, held the line against Islam in 732 and is uh, celebrated, and that's why he's buried among yeah. the French kings. That's his mm. uh, stature. And yet you, sub you describe the scene around that Yes. cathedral, which is really quite remarkable. Yes. Uh, aside from that Christian building in the mm. middle of it, it's not Europe anymore. No, I mean, I say if, if Jean Martel got out of his tomb mm. and uh, yeah. wandered just outside the Basilica of Saint-Denis, mm. he would mm. think he'd he lost the Battle of right. Tours. Right. Um, it's a very strange and painful thing, this. The French, I think, are deeply pained by this. They don't know what to do about it. Uh, the the, the centre of Paris, they all know this place is there. Yeah. It's an yeah. extraordinary part of their history where the tombs of the kings all are. Yeah. But they, uh, they don't want to go there. And they wish it wasn't there. Well, they wish it wasn't as it was. But it is. As you well know, I mean, these are two different things living alongside each other. But you do get these intimations sometimes of how this can go. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I think, I, I was trying to, in the book, say that this is, we're all thinking about this. I mean, everyone apart from our politicians, yeah. obviously, but we're all worrying about this. And it's a version of what I think I explained at one point that I think of as being the, the process we've been going through in Europe and that America and others have been going through, which is that, that sort of feeling that the, Boomers and others had that. That basically history and the future was a was a one-way street. You know, mm. when we were going to walk up it, and the crowd was yeah. all with us. Yeah. And you know, we, if you walked faster, you'd get more points. But right. we're basically walking to a ever better and brighter future in which you know we had more and more rights and right. fighting for more and more niche rights. But that was a you know all. Yeah. And then we noticed somebody walking down the other way. Yeah. And um, sort of, well, that's odd. And then more people started walking the other way. And then it seems to me that we in Europe are in the process of wondering what if yeah. one day more people are walking the other way than are walking our way. Right. And that's what's happening. It's still um, a disreputable subject yes. in, a, in a certain sense. Yeah. Is it? And you have people... I saw uh, Kenneth Clark, former uh, Lord Chancellor, yeah. a big heavyweight member of the Conservative Party. He was on Question Time with my old friend Conrad Black a few months ago, and I happened to see him. And he suddenly goes into this sentimental rhapsody about how the multicultural transformation of Britain has been one of the most uh, uh, wonderful things he's seen in his lifetime. Right. That he hardly ever, he says, uh, I hardly ever saw a black person uh, when I was growing up, mm. and now I don't even notice it if I see one on the bus or something. Well, I don't believe that the Lord Chancellor takes yes. buses yeah. that often. And uh, you wouldn't particularly expect him to say, oh, there's one. Yeah, no, no, no. But this seemed to me the, the most absurdly sentimental yes. that somehow... You make, the, you make the point in the book that we're supposed to celebrate diversity. Mm. And Britain is already like a big Stanley Gibbons yeah. album. It's got uh, initially it was the Empire. Yeah. Now you've got people from places that were never, never. within Her Majesty's dominions yeah. in any sense. 
so it's it's like move beyond that to all kinds of all yeah. kinds of people. And it, you and you say, at what point are we? You know, we're not diverse enough. Uh, so yes. w- if we add another one million Pakistanis, are we diverse enough, or yeah. is it going to be another four million yes. Pakistanis? Yeah, I mean, I mean, as I say, I mean, I mean, the problem with parts of East London is is mm. they're not diverse enough, mm. but they count as diverse. They just right. You know, there aren't the the sort of people who tick white British right. in enough a number to make it a diverse place anymore. But does that count? Yeah, because you're, you're saying that diversity means now predominantly Muslim yes. areas of the East End yeah. where all the non-Muslims have found it uncomfortable and moved out. Well, that's the thing, you see, because the Kenneth Clark-like argument is, mm-hmm. well, there are still these bits of the countryside, of right. course, where the sort of, you know, they're... They haven't had diversity enough. Actually, that isn't true. Uh, a lot of the people who don't live in places like East End of London have uh, moved out because they tried diversity and they didn't like it all uh, that much. Uh, or, you know, they discovered that their area was entirely Bangladeshi uh, and they just didn't... That wasn't what they thought their future was going to be like. And they, they move out to Kent. Yeah, you, you, um, you, you, you have a great observation, which is fascinating. That, because it's about the difference between how we live our lives yes. and the attitudes we hold. And you talk about Swedes yes. uh, in Stockholm who find uh, Swedish cities are all becoming a bit too diverse and multicultural. So they move out to the country to mm. live among more of their ethnic Swedes. Mm. But if asked by pollsters, they still say that, oh, yes, we'd much prefer to live in yeah, a more yeah. diverse nation. Yeah, the less diverse the area you yeah. move to, the more in favour you are of diversity of right, other people. Right, right, right. Um, but you know, at the heart of this, it's, it's one of these huge questions, which, again, we never asked ourselves. I mean, this is one of the things that fascinates me about this is, you know, just looking over the history of this, we never, ever predicted any of it. No. And we never asked any of the serious questions. And one of the things that is most bizarre about this whole thing is, like, w- what was it about ourselves in Europe that we decided, you know, Europe is a really boring, uncultured place yeah. that hasn't done enough or thought enough or created enough. Yeah. And what we really need is an injection of people from around the world to bring us yeah. their brilliant culture. Now, the thing about this is, of course, is that we all know that who of us doesn't want to know about the world's cultures and yeah. find out things? Um, but, the, but, the, but the blessing you get from it isn't constant. Right. In in relation to the numbers who arrive, so it, it, the first the first Afghan can introduce you to Afghan food, right. but the thousandth Afghan doesn't introduce you to more food than the no. first, and the millionth, and so on and so forth. Right. So, but but what is it about us that makes us think that there's this hole in our heart that 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 the that the, the, the culture that produced all of this in Europe, that the the culture that produced the Renaissance and the mm. Reformation. Mm. And the heights of what we regard as civilization right. actually had a hole in its heart that needed filling. Because you never, ever hear this about anywhere else. No yeah. one ever says, no. the thing about Somalia is yeah. they really need an input of people from Wales yeah. to go yeah. and introduce them to, yeah. you know. It's really hard to find a good French restaurant in Mogadishu. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the chamber orchestra yeah. really could use yeah. some, uh, you, there's not enough bark in Somalia. Yeah. Nobody it, ever says that. It's never done that way around. Yeah, yeah. And... This goes to the masochism that we yeah. clearly indulge in, 
that that uh, uh, as I say in the book at one point, you know, I mean, we, we, we're in a great risk on this one. That I mean, the great problem for masochists, I'm told, mm. is what happens when they meet a real sadist, mm. and and <laughs> and it's possible <laughs> that we're in the pro- process of meeting our sadist. Yes, um, and that what seemed to be just a sort of kink turns out to be fatal. Yeah. In other words, you're in the bondage dungeon and you suddenly realize there is no safe word. Uh, to extend your metaphor. My uncomfortable metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> Dominion Day 2017, Canada sesquicentennial. The complete stinkeroo Justin made of Canada's 150th birthday is fascinating and revealing about the state of civilizational self-loathing that afflicts the West's political class, it is in that sense relevant far beyond Canada. Of the weekend's belly flop, there can be no doubt. Christy Blatchford in the National Post, quote, Before the day dawned dreary and rainy, there were confident reports in virtually every major news outlet in the land that 500,000 people would descend on Parliament Hill. About 25,000 made it onto the lawns, and if you imagine it was all because of the grisly weather, think again. And even that 25,000 is a bit of a rounding up by Blatch, it was apparently more like 21,000. By comparison, six years ago, over 300,000 swarmed to Parliament Hill for Canada Day. To be sure, newlyweds William and Kate were present, which might be interpreted as a sign of shallow celeb fixation driving attendance. But in fact, His Royal Highness made some rather sober remarks on Canadian military sacrifice, which were more serious and dignified than anything anyone said on Saturday. Canadians had no trouble celebrating at home or among friends. What they checked out of was the official narrative. A national celebration of collective guilt is a hard act to pull off. An historical anniversary on which it's unsafe to mention any history doesn't leave a lot else. The Liberal Party of Justin's dad offered us a rather wearisome nationalist boosterism. Now it's boosterism without the nationalism, which is even more wearisome. I would dearly have loved someone to walk out on stage and say, this is all total bollocks, isn't it? But the nearest we got was Charles and Camilla involuntarily giggling through the Inuit throat singing in Nunavut. And that probably wasn't a smart move, which the First Nations activists are sure to demand that pound of blubber over. The horrible tinny hollowness of Saturday is a shocking reminder of how feel-good multiculturalism has curdled into feel-bad anti-culturalism. And yet for Justin Trudeau, the man who hailed Canada as the first post-national state, what could be more natural than the first post-national national holiday? What the Prime Minister calls our new post-national identity is doubtless inspiring to some. It may well have inspired Rehab Dugmosh to join ISIS. Meanwhile, Canada Day in British Columbia witnessed the world's first baby to be registered as, quote, sex unknown. When he, she, Z gets a Canadian passport, it can likewise be marked as nationality unknown. As I said, it's Canada's 150th birthday. And uh, and on our show, we're featuring a lot of great Canadian songs. 
And this is one of my favorite Canadian songs. Not a lot of people know that it's, uh, that it's Canadian. Uh, most people will, will know the Billboard Top 40 and Casey Kasem counting it down. And the Billboard uh, Hot 100 is the, the gold standard of what all the hit songs are. And it started in 1940. And the very first hit record, the very first American number one record in 1940 was the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra with the Pied Pipers and a young boy vocalist called Frank Sinatra. But it was a Canadian song. And so the very first American number one uh, was actually a Canadian song by my fellow Torontonian, Ruth Lowe. And Ruth uh, married a music publicist in Chicago in 1938. And they were very happy for a year, and then he had an, a routine operation, and he died. And she was devastated. And she went back to Toronto, and she was uh, living in her parents' apartment, and her life was ruined, and she used to look out the window at the park across the street, and she'd see all these couples walking by. And she said to her sister, uh, I look at those couples, and I know I'll never smile again. And somewhere in the midst of her grief, uh, the old songwriter's light bulb went off, and she thought that was a good song title, and she wrote it up. That was 1939. Three months later, Canada was at war, and with all those great war ballads for all those parted lovers, I'll be seeing you, and we'll meet again. This is Canada's contribution, sung by Tal Backman. I'll see if I can do it justice. I'll never smile again Until I smile at you I'll never laugh again What good would it do? Fill my eyes My heart would realize That our romance is true I'll never love again I'm so in love with you I'll never thrill again To somebody new Within my heart I know I will never start To smile again Until I smile at you Till I smile. 
smile at you Thank you, Chow. That is, uh, he made me very happy. That is, that is one of my favorite songs. Yeah. And a, a great I wish song. I'd written that one. The first one comes from Ray Bolland, and Ray writes, Hi, Mark. Living in Malaysia, I can't join in on the live Q&As, but I wonder what your thoughts are on these two questions. Does Trump have any friends, allies with any power in the White House and or D.C.? If so, is there any hope the swamp can be drained or will it eventually subsume or defenestrate him? Proud to be a founding member of the Mark Stein Club. Keep fighting all your good fights. Thank you for that, Ray. And I'm sorry that what with the time zones, uh, I think our live stream audio Q&A is about four in the morning in Malaysia. So it is hard for you to participate live, but we are always glad to hear from our Malay uh, members of the club. And uh, you ask about whether Trump has any friends or allies with any power in the White House and or DC, or is the swamp just going eventually to consume it? The swamp is fighting a very fierce battle on multiple fronts. And uh, they're doing this several ways. One is that the, the permanent bureaucracy is actually leaking against him quite disgracefully. Uh, when, for example, they're leaking private conversations with the Australian prime minister or the Mexican president, you'd think those conversations were quite tightly held, but nothing is tightly held. The American bureaucracy is so vast, there's uh, over 4 million people with top security clearance. That's about the population. That's like, imagine if every, everybody in New Zealand was a member of MI6. You know, there's a reason why James Bond is 007, licensed to kill. There's meant to be very few of them. The minute you have top secret agents uh, and it's four million and seven, the whole thing goes to pieces. So you've got the permanent bureaucracy leaking against him. Uh, you've got the Democrats who are just itching to impeach him. And you've got the Republican Party, which wants to basically castrate him and make him a conventional Republican president. In other words, yes, he's Trump, and he'll say Trumpish things, and he'll tweet all the time, but essentially he'll govern as Jeb Bush or John Kasich would have. And on that's the dangerous one, I think, uh, the idea of castrating him and turning him into Jeb Bush or John Kasich. And they're getting pretty close to him in certain respects in that people they've been able to take out around him. And uh, I don't know where this goes, but I think Trump will succeed or fail as Trump on the issues that got Trump elected, uh, such as the forgotten man and immigration and the return of some kind of manufacturing and meaningful purpose to life. And it's not going to work trying to turn him into Jeb Bush or John Kasich. That's the, uh, that's the most threatening one to him, I would say. And we're always glad, as I said, to hear from our club members in Kuala Lumpur or any other part 
of uh, Malaysia. I was thinking the other day, because if, if you're an old school imperialist like me, the first generation uh, of independent leaders are very vivid. They were, they were kind of vivid part of my childhood. And I don't suppose many Americans have heard of Tunku Abdul Rahman. Uh, but the Tunku was a very vivid uh, figure uh, in the early days after. He uh, was Malaya, Malaya's first prime minister and then Malaysia's uh, first prime minister. And uh, he famously landed at Heathrow Airport at the height of the Profumo sex scandal when uh, Britannic Majesty's minister for war had been having an affair with the same lady of ill repute as the uh, leading Soviet uh, KGB man at the Soviet embassy in London. And the Profumo sex scandal wound up bringing down the conservative government uh, eventually. And uh, the, the, there was a rather delightful lady whom I knew in later life a little bit. I knew uh, there were two girls, the Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis. And Christine uh, Keeler, who had a sort of... A, a very vulnerable kind of beauty. And then Mandy Rice Davis, who was the bubbly one, and gave all the best sound bites. And Tunku Abdul Rahman from Malaysia landed at Heathrow Airport. <laughs> and some reporter asked uh, what he wanted. And he said, I want Mandy. And Mandy is a Malaysian term for a bath, which is the sort of thing you'd say if you'd been on a long flight from Kuala Lumpur to Heathrow. Uh, but in fact, they took it that he actually wanted Mandy Rice Davis. So he delighted Fleet Street. But in fact, he wanted a bath after a long flight. I've gotten off track here. What I meant to say was about the Tunku. Tunku Abdul Rahman said to uh, Sir Garfield Barwick, who was uh, external affairs minister of Australia and later... Uh, the longest-serving Chief Justice in Australian history. And uh, the Tunku said to Sir Garfield that um, there's nothing more insoluble than diversity. And he was saying, recommending to Sir Garfield, that uh, Australia remain a white European nation because he said the problem of diversity is insoluble. And he said, in, in Malaysia, I have, Mal uh, I have Malays, I have Indians, I have Chinese, and the problem of diversity is insoluble. September 11th, 2017. If this is a war, there's no agreement on what we're up against. Terrorism, Islamic terrorism, Islamic extremism, Islam. Whatever it is, a president who on the campaign trail mocked his predecessor's inability to use the words radical Islam himself issued all mention of the I-word today. September 11th, 2001 was supposedly the day everything changed. If by everything changed, you mean the rate of mass Muslim immigration to the West doubled. As that absurd statistic suggests... We are not where I thought we would be 16 years on. We run around fighting for worthless bits of barren sod like Helmand province in Afghanistan while surrendering day by day some of the most valuable real estate on the planet, such as France and Sweden. Now, that last point may seem obvious, but if it is, it's a truth all but entirely unacknowledged by anyone who matters in the Western world. In any war, you have to be able to prioritise. You can't win everything, so where would you rather win? Raqqa 
or Rotterdam, Kandahar or Cannes. Yet whenever some guy goes Allahu Akbar on the streets of a Western city, the telepundits generally fall into one of two groups. The left say it's no big deal, and the right say, oh, this is why we need more boots on the ground in Syria or Afghanistan. Yesterday, President Trump said he was committed to ensuring that terrorists never again have a safe haven to launch attacks against our country. By that, he means safe havens in Afghanistan. But the reason the West's enemies are able to pile up a continuous corpse count in Paris, Nice, Berlin, Brussels, London, Manchester, Copenhagen, Stockholm, Orlando, San Bernardino, Ottawa, Sydney, Barcelona, your town here is because they have safe havens in France, Germany, Britain, Scandinavia, North America. Which safe havens are likely to prove more consequential for the developed world in the years ahead? Who's winning what turf? After 16 years of Western military occupation, the Taliban control more territory in Afghanistan than at any time since the first US troops went in. On the other hand, after 16 years of accelerating Islamic immigration, Europe has more no-go zones, more Sharia courts, more refugees, more covered women, more Muslim-dominated schoolhouses, more radical mosques, more female genital mutilation, more grooming and gang rape, more Muslim Brotherhood front groups, more Muslim mayors and legislators, more Muslim-funded Middle East studies programs at universities, and fewer churches... Fewer Jews in Toulouse, fewer gays in Amsterdam, fewer unaccompanied women out after dark in German and Swedish cities, fewer historical representations of Mohammed in continental museums, art galleries and scholarly books, fewer mixed bathing sessions at municipal swimming pools, fewer lessons on the Crusades and the Holocaust in European schools, and less and less free speech in some of the oldest democracies on earth. In Afghanistan, we're fighting for something not worth winning and we're losing. In Europe, Islam is fighting for something very much worth winning and they're advancing. And according to all the official strategists in Washington and elsewhere, these two things are nothing to do with each other. Stein Sunday poem. This is a poem I think about a lot and I wish I thought more about it a decade and a half ago in the heady rush of those first post 9-11 military victories in Afghanistan and Iraq before they curdled into the slow bleed of thankless occupation uh, when a leathery gap-toothed old fella from uh, was it Najaf newly liberated from Saddam Hussein was asked what America meant to him and beaming he responded democracy whiskey sexy a decade after the fall of the Soviet Union, America was the hyperpower in a unipolar world. Why wouldn't it be that easy? In 1897, Rudyard Kipling was invited to write a poem for Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. He had just returned to Britain after living in Dummerston, Vermont, which he'd enjoyed. The Connecticut River, the autumn leaves, the natural beauty, loved it all, until he fell out with his American wife's brother, and suddenly he was just another unlikable foreigner in a close-knit small town. Some of us have been there. And we know how that can go on either the Vermont or New Hampshire side of the Connecticut. So Mr. and Mrs. Kipling sailed for England 
and arrived as the greatest empire the world has ever known was preparing to celebrate the Queen Empress's 60 years on the throne. As Jubilee observances began, the poet found himself disturbed by the public mood. To be sure, no other British monarch had lived to celebrate a diamond jubilee, and none could command subjects on every corner of the planet. Dominion over palm and pine, as Kipling put it, from the Rocky Mountains to the jungles of Africa to the islands of the Pacific, a most un-English empire at least in terms of its flora and fauna. A quarter of the world was ruled by civil servants in stolid grey offices from a damp little island off the coast of northwest Europe. An empire on which the sun never set, because even when it was night in London, it was a bright new day in East Africa or Ceylon or Hong Kong or New Zealand. And in that jubilee year, the empire came to town to honor the great imperial matriarch. 46,000 troops from every corner of Her Majesty's dominions marched down the Mall, led by Field Marshal Lord Roberts on the same steed that had carried him from Kabul to Kandahar in the Second Afghan War. Imperialism, whiskey, sexy, so to speak. I'm old enough to have known men who were little boys in the streets that day. And as I wrote in America Alone, to any ten-year-old lad watching that procession, it would have been inconceivable that by the time of his 85th birthday, the greatest empire the world had ever known would have sunk to an economically moribund, strike-bound slough of despond, whose tax rates drove its best talents abroad and whose greatest imperial jewels now valued relations with a communist Russia over those with the mother country. And yet it happened. Written towards the conclusion of the Jubilee Hazars, this poem was published in July of 1897 in the Times and uh, my old magazine, The Spectator, the oldest continuously published English language magazine in the world. I was always humbled uh, to be the unworthy successor in its pages to Rudyard Kipling, John Buchan, Graham Greene and other eminent contributors. Kipling called his poem recessional, as in the piece of music that ends a church service, and particularly, I think, a, a funeral or a memorial service. That's when most of us get the opportunity to pick out a recessional for ourselves. Kipling was not an especially religious man, but he used the language of scripture here, because he wished to contrast the transient with the transcendent. So his refrain, lest we forget, lest we forget, is an allusion to Deuteronomy. Then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt. Kipling's appropriation shifted the burden of the phrase. It's why in Britain, Canada, around the Commonwealth, Remembrance Day services use the injunction, lest we forget. But there are other biblical references too, as in this reminder of how greatness can leave no trace. Far called our navies melt away, on dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Tyre was the uh, Phoenician capital, destroyed by Alexander the Great in 332 BC. Nineveh was on the east bank of the Tigris, that's to say modern-day Iraq, near Mosul. 
In 612 BC, it fell to its enemies and was razed to the ground, as the Islamic State ISIS uh, attempted to do in their own more recent retreat from Mosul. And then comes the final verse to remind us that a heathen heart that puts her trust in reeking tube and iron shard cannot endure. In other words, technological supremacy is not enough. So at the height of imperial power, at the heart of the empire on which the sun never set, Kipling discerned the sunset. From Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee of 1897, Recessional by Rudyard Kipling. God of our fathers known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line, beneath whose awful hand we hold, dominion over palm and pine. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart. Still stands thine ancient sacrifice, an humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Far called our navies melt away, on dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tar. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. If drunk with sight of power we loose, wild tongues that have not thee in awe, such boastings as the Gentiles use, or lesser breeds without the law. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. For heathen heart that puts her trust in reeking tube and iron shard, all valiant dust that builds on dust, and guarding calls not thee to guard, for frantic boast and foolish word, Thy mercy on thy people, Lord. Recessional by Rudyard Kipling. The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart. They all do. Stein on stage. I have particular contempt uh, for the never Trumpers. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed that people could seriously vote, leave their ballots blank, as the Bushes did, uh, vote for that guy, what was he called, Mc, Mc, McMullen, McMuffin, whatever the guy was, what's he called, the guy in Utah, uh, that's what Lindsey Graham did. Uh, Bill Crystal uh, wanted to put up David... <laughs> I didn't know that was the way... <laughs> to be a big, big hit, mentioned Bill Chris. <laughs> it's like an English pantomime, if you've ever seen there. It like when Captain Hook comes on in Peter Pan and everyone, everyone boo. Well, that's what he is. I mean, I couldn't get over it. Bill Crystal. So it's fascinating to me. Bill Crystal. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's twirling his moustaches in the wings. He's... Uh, Tying the damsel to the railroad track. Um, 
Bill, Bill, Bill Crystal actually. <laughs> he, um, he actually ha he held a meeting on a private island off uh, South Carolina or Georgia or somewhere, uh, where all these people flew in on these private planes, the donor class, the Council of Donors all flew in on their private jets uh, to see how they could uh, destroy Trump. And uh, the, I'm not sure if this was the meeting where they picked David French, my former colleague at National Review, who was going, he's a very nice fellow, but he had uh, all the qualities of leadership except followers. And <laughs> he had... Um, And they were going to, uh, they basically, it, it, this happened about six months after the last James Bond film came out. And Bill Crystal basically held a Spectre board meeting. He, <laughs> he, he held a Spectre board meeting, just like in the Bond film, uh, where, where they all are. What do you have to report from New Hampshire, number two? Uh, and... I'm afraid you're growing rather tiresome, Mr. Trump. It's like he was doing all, he was, he was doing all that. Um, that, the never Trump crowd is the reason we got Trump. And they missed the point. It's a lot easier for, it's a lot easier for the base to get itself a new elite than for the elite to get itself a new base. And those guys, those guys, so they can hold all the meetings. They're probably on their private islands off the coast of uh, Georgia. They probably, next time they probably will go full Bond villain and book the, a hollowed out volcano in which to have their secret meeting. But they're, they're the reason we wound up with Trump. Because in, in, when Jimmy Carter used the word in the 70s, malaise was a blip in America's golden post-1950 moment. For too many people now, malaise is a permanent feature of life. And they switch on the television and they watch the Democrats. And the Democrats are into identity politics. And they're finding smaller and smaller slivers of identity groups uh, in, in barely statistical, statistically detectable demographic numbers. So that you switch on the TV and they're talking about transgendered bathrooms. And your mill is closed down, and it doesn't matter, because no one's ever going to be going to the bathroom in that mill ever again. Your factory is closed down. You don't care what bathroom policy it has. You don't know what a trans... You've never met a... The whole point about having what we used to call a sex change is that you were supposed to be such a convincing woman, nobody knew you used to be a man. So if you pull that off, uh, and I recommend you don't get that done on Obamacare, you want to have really uh, premium health insurance if you have that operation. <laughs> if you pull that off, you, nobody knows you used to be a man. So most people, they, they don't know, I'm, have we ever met, what's the transgender, have we ever met a transgender bathroom, but what is this about? There are millions and millions of blue collar losers whose lives have been ruined 
And no matter how many millions and millions and millions there are, they don't count as much as these boutique, barely statistically detectable demographic groups that the Democrats are talking about all the time, these micro-demographic groups. These are... And they made the connection between the downward mobility of many Americans' lives and issues such as these uh, appalling trade deals and mass immigration. And Lindsay, Lindsey Graham's thing is that somehow the war on terror is absolutely essential, absolutely essential. We should be fighting it everywhere around the world. We should have boots on the ground in Syria. We should have boots on the ground in Yemen, boots on the ground in Mali, boots on the ground in Chad, boots, 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 uh, in the words of Rudyard Kipling, all around the planet. And, uh, and yet, at the same time, we should have open borders. Those two things do not go together. And Trump's instincts in that, uh, in that campaign were absolutely, absolutely right. I talked to the trees, but they don't listen to me. Biggest story of the year, the biggest story. Liberals have run out of racist statues to take down, so they've now moved on to racist trees. In the California desert, the city of Palm Springs wants to chop down a grove of 60-year-old tamarisk trees that stands between a golf club and a black residential neighborhood. If you're thinking, hey, wait a minute, aren't liberals supposed to be tree huggers? Well, yes, unless you're planting a racist tree. The city believes these trees were planted with racist intent. Others say it was to prevent some chap sauntering in his plus fours from calling for his niblick and chipping that golf ball straight through your window. But that's always the cover for racism, isn't it? People don't go out and say, we're doing this for a racist reason. They go out and say, we're going to give you landscaping. In fact, we're going to landscape you right out of existence. And oh, by the oh, way, okay. these trees are going to protect you from golf balls. So just like race, golf balls flying through your kitchen window is a social construct. Don't worry about it. The tamarisk is now the Robert E. Lee of trees. It's Robert E. Tree. And liberals suddenly have no more desire to hug that tree than they do to hug Charlie Rose or Matt Lauer. The tamarisk is not just racist, it's nasty. The African-American, the black families whose properties are adjacent to those trees, and if you've done any research on the tree, you'll know that's one of the nastiest trees around, and it's also been declared an environmental disaster by the federal government. So to invert Barbara Walters, if this tree were a celebrity, what celebrity would it be? I am a nasty woman. The tamarisk is nasty and foreign. Uh, but wait a minute, as we just heard, in California, everything's foreign. An illegal immigrant can get a driver's license, free health care. An unlawful immigrant can practice law in California. The one thing he can't do is stand on the edge of a golf course covered in foliage. On that, everyone's a nativist. When it comes to vegetation, absolutely. Eucalyptus trees have become a real problem with tipping Whoa. over in the storm. So liberals are in favor of open borders for people, but not for trees. Tamarisks are found all over the Muslim world, 
but this is one Muslim ban they're willing to support. When you come to America, you can bring your prayer rooms, your hijabs, your mosques, your Sharia law, but you let better leave your tamarisk back in Tamariskistan. Not in my stand, says California. You can have your choice of female head cover, but not of tree cover. You have to assimilate with American trees. Uh, because just like uh, certain excitable young men of uh, an extremist persuasion, the tamarisk is prone to self-combust. Tamarisk trees themselves have been explosive during these fires that have been happening. So not only do we have the aspect of the traditional, the origin of the planting of these trees being to separate the black and people of color community across the street after their homes were demolished, by the way, by the city of Palm Springs under racist conditions. So just like a Klansman, the tamarisk stands on your lawn and sets everything alight. As the old Christmas carol says, O tamarisk, O tamarisk, how racist are thy branches. What can we replace the tamarisk with? A nice stand of eucalyptus? I think your guest last night mentioned eucalyptus, so it's interesting your guest tonight is saying no eucalyptus. Democrats a decade ago, more trees, less bush. Democrats now, less trees, more open space to keep an eye on Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey. Now, you might think liberals have finally flown the coop launching this war on trees. They're literally out of their tree. But what if they're right? What if this really is the root cause? What if trees are racist? Here are the three most forested states in the Union. Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. And here are the whitest states in the Union. Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire. Coincidence? Australia Day 2018. Here am I on the radio way back when, uh, in those glory days, talking to Greg Ham from the band Men at Work. The, the monster track is down under, and I wondered... It's become a kind of Australian anthem. It looks as if it may well be hung around your neck like mm. my way with Frank Sinatra or, mm. or something like that, you know, where it is just so big. And, uh, you know, it is... And it put Vegemite sandwiches uh, on the map. Uh, is it, in fact, something that you are already getting perhaps a little sick of playing or do you still enjoy it? I don't get sick of playing it. Um, it's still... We still enjoy... I mean, it's... It's a good song. That's why mm. it's been such a yeah. success. And... Uh, and I mean, we've played it really since the start of the band, right mm. since the start of the band. Um, and I guess we'll have to play it forever, you know. I mean, it's kind of, it is one of those things. And, uh, but I, I think that um, the biggest problem that's caused for us, if there are, has caused any problems, is that it's, um, some people would, are looking at it as being, mm. well, this is what Men at Work are about, when yeah. it really is just one of our songs. Mm. And um, there's people that have written us off as being sort of Aussie bonzos, you know, yeah. and, and, and idiots that talk, do songs about drinking beer. And that's mm. not really, I mean, the song is tongue in cheek, but people tend to read into things what they want to.
When Greg Ham says he does the stuff that the rest of the band didn't want to do, that includes that distinctive, unforgettable flute riff on Down Under. That was number one in Australia on Australia Day, uh, but it was also number one around the planet. In fact, Men at Work are the only Australian band to have topped the UK and US charts simultaneously. And ever since, Down Under has been a kind of musical shorthand for contemporary Australia. It was used on the Kangaroo Jack soundtrack and the trailer for Finding Nemo, uh, in part because of that famous couplet that I referenced to Greg. Uh, I said, do you speak of my language? He just smiled and gave me a Vegemite sandwich, which is a truly atrocious rhyme. Uh, but for a while did wonders for Vegemite sales in the Northern Hemisphere. I can't speak for Aussies, but I think what the rest of the world likes about the song is that it captures Australians as most of us first encounter them, the backpacking globetrotter in a bar in Earl's Court or Dublin or Hong Kong or Vancouver or Delhi or a thousand other spots. I I did my share of travelling in my youth, And like a lot of folks, I was always glad to find myself on a bar stool next to an Australian. Wherever you're from, they never seem that foreign to you, if you know what I mean. And if you don't, well, give it a go next time you're in a bar on the other side of the planet. And uh, maybe you'll get lucky and it'll be an Aussie sitting on the stool next to you. What was it Greg Ham said about the song? I guess we'll have to play it forever. Well, when you're a young rock and roll star, forever stretches off into the shimmering haze like the Australian bush. 
and uh, Greg Ham's Forever uh, turned out to be a lot shorter than he might have expected. I was very shocked just before my 2012 Oz tour uh, to hear that Greg had been found dead at his home in Melbourne. He was uh, just 58. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. Washington, D.C. experienced a mild snowfall last week. Luckily, city councilman Trayon White was on it. He knows why it happened. Watch this. It just started snowing out of nowhere this morning, man. Y'all better pay attention to this climate control, man. This climate manipulation. And D.C. keep talking about we're a resilient city. And that's a model based off the Rothschilds controlling the climate to create natural disasters they can pay for to own the cities, man. Be careful. Yep, the Rothschilds control the climate. The Rothschilds, of course, are a wealthy Jewish banking clan. They're included in a great many conspiracy theories, but those theories rarely give them credit for the weather. That's an ambitious new twist. Mark Stein is an author and columnist and a part-time meteorologist, and he joins us tonight. What do you make it? So this is, by the way, I live here, so you can laugh all you want, but that's actually mm -hmm. my city councilman speaking there. The Rothschilds control the weather. Did you know that? Uh, well, uh, I did, actually, uh, uh, Tucker. They've, uh, they, they bought the weather uh, from God uh, back in <laughs> 1929 uh, when he had a bit of a liquidity problem after the uh, Wall Street crash. And uh, they keep it in the uh, wine cellars at the Chateau Mouton Rothschild estate in France. And uh, they're able to micro-target the climate. Um, for example, it was light snow in your part of Washington. Uh, but I gather in the stairwell of Trayon White's uh, apartment building, he actually had an avalanche <laughs> just on his floor. That's, that's how uh, micro-targeted the big Jew weather machine um, is able to be. And, he may, and by the way, you may... You may think it's a light snowfall, but if you actually examine it, it's actually small pieces of gefilte fish, uh, which is why it doesn't melt. And that's why the Jews control the snowplow business. Uh, so they scoop all the gefilte fish in Washington away and they use it to make Louis Farrakhan Calypso albums, uh, which they put out to discredit uh, Louis Farrakhan from telling the truth about the synagogue of Satan. It all makes sense. <laughs> One of our 2017 Steinposts uh, featured a story out of Wilfrid Laurier University for non-Canadians. So Wilfrid was the first Francophone Prime Minister of Canada and the university that bears his name suddenly became world famous uh, because a troika of commissars summoned to an inquisition a young teaching assistant for showing a brief clip from a public affairs television show uh, that nevertheless was not in full 100% ideological compliance uh, with what those commissars thought should be taught at the university. And the teaching assistant uh, took the precaution of recording her interrogation uh, and the tape recording of that interrogation went around the planet uh, and raised serious questions about free speech. The lady who was the subject of that inquisition is with us today, Lindsay Shepard. Lindsay, it's great to, uh, it's great to see you. Tell me something. Uh, have you got a, a kind of adjusted to the fame and the notoriety? Um, I'm adjusted, yeah. Mm. I... I wouldn't say fame, but I, I definitely feel like there's a niche 
And it's nice to be part of the niche. When you say uh, the niche, mm-hmm. what, what do you mean there? The kind of free speech niche? Yeah, mm. yeah. free speech advocates. Mm. Um, there's also this new thing called the intellectual dark web. Uh, right. I've been tagged in a couple memes related to that. So <laughs> Right, right. And by the intellectual dark web, mm-hmm. uh, what people mean is that uh, uh, the, the official public accepted discourse is relatively narrow. On the internet, you can go off in all kinds of other corners, and right. uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, tell me something though. Uh, before this whole thing blew up, uh, what was free speech to you? Um, free speech was something that you didn't really need to focus on unless you had a very um, objectionable opinion. That's what I right. thought. I, I had the opinion of, you know, what I would now call social justice warriors in the pejorative sense. Right, right. Yeah. But you but you basically were kind of stringing along with the social justice end of things? Um, I was, yeah. Mm. In, in my first two years of university, I would say I was a social justice warrior, pretty mm. much. Um, but then I, I started to kind of question things. Um, but yeah, they say that um, I'm, I'm interested in, in the comments that people say. Mm. Like social media has actually played a big role in this. And mm. I'm very interested in, in what regular people have to say about this. And, um, yeah, so a lot would say, like, white women have a history of, like, siding with white men just to kind of be on the side of power because they're afraid or whatever. Yes, that's like the argument they make as Mm -hmm. to why white women, a majority of white women voted for Trump Mm -hmm. uh, in the 2016 uh, U.S. election. So Mm -hmm. that's the same argument. It's like uh, Mm -hmm. liberal left-wing women say, well, yes, these, of course, these um, white women vote for Trump because they're just doing what their husbands tell them to. Mm -hmm. So you're just just siding with the alt-right because men are making you do it. Right. Then it kind of is confirming their own view of like patriarchy right in a way like because they don't think that women can actually do stuff independently and there's more radical conspiracy theories too like there's some people who would write tweets about how oh like maybe this is like a whole like jordan peterson plant thing like right. he and like pay, is he's paying me to do this or something right right you know? yeah so he like spotted you years ago yeah. when you were <laughs> back in british columbia yeah. And uh, and kind of trained you and and put you as a deep sleeper to penetrate Wilfrid Laurier University <laughs> years later. Exactly. Yeah. Boy, that uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, pretty cunning. Yeah. It's like... Someone in my own class um, wrote a tweet saying it's so suspicious that uh, I gained Twitter followers so quickly. <laughs> right. <laughs> so <laughs> there must be something going on. <laughs> so that's just basically some uh, American neo-Nazi group that just yeah. transferred all its Twitter followers right. to you. Yeah. Oh. yeah. What What does that tell you, though, about how um, the contemporary left approaches an argument? Um, they are so far in their echo chamber that when they confront someone who strays a little bit, it's very difficult for them to conceive of that, I think. Right, right. Yeah, so they re- they resort to these kind of semi-conspiracy theories. Um, and yes, of course, immediately you become like alt-right because there's no possible way that you could have, you know, a little bit of divergence but still be like a leftist liberal. Is that one thing you've learned, that uh, on the left, uh, essentially you're required to be in 100% compliance? I suppose, but I don't want to overgeneralize like mm. the left um, right. because I, I think the most reasonable approach is that like are any of us really just starkly left and starkly right? 
No, no, that's the way really. that's the way people used to think about things, and mm -hmm. and uh, it used to be that you could uh, eighty percent agree with someone and twenty percent disagree, but. There doesn't seem to be as much of that around as there should be uh, anymore. Has what happened uh, to you, and more more particularly your stance on it, has it cost you friendships? It hasn't. No, okay. I've actually gained friends. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's that's good. Because yeah. I'll tell I'll tell you something again from these European guys. You know, like uh, just um, Swedish artists or French cartoonists. Um, that when something like this happens. And it's fine at first, and then at a certain point, they miss uh, the left-wing friendships they used to have, and they're not entirely comfortable uh, with the fact that it's like right-wing guys defending them. And they, at a certain level, they kind of miss. They miss the old. They miss the old days. It can be quite. Okay. It can be quite lonely when you break with orthodoxy. Um. Okay. I'm pretty comfortable with like my new right wing friends. <laughs> I yeah, no, I'm fine with it. Really? There's there's more like lively debate. No. There's more yeah, there's more interesting conversations, I'd say. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.